never stood a chance no how When he got uninvited to The interplanetary dance Once a mighty planet there Now just an ordinary star Hanging out in Hollywood In some old funky sushi bar Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today, it is a wonderful honor to be joined by astronomer and professor of planetary astronomy at Caltech, Mike Brown. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So dubbed the man who killed Pluto after his discovery of Eris and several other probable trans-Neptunian dwarf planets, only Mike could be the author of How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. His discoveries and characterization of the Kuiper Belt and its largest members has opened up considerable understanding of the history of our planetary system, as well as resulting in numerous awards, honors and accolades. But not just the killer of planets, Mike also appears to be ever closer to proving the discovery of the true ninth planet of our solar system, which would be our fifth largest that of Planet Nine. So, Mike, thank you once again for being with us today. And you're chatting to us from Caltech? I am. Are you based there sort of most days? I'm here at uh, Caltech when I'm working on campus, or, you know, you might find me at a telescope somewhere around the world um, any particular night. And when was your last telescope outing? Well, these days, Telescope outings are from the comfort of your living room um, since they're all shut down to actual astronomers coming at them. So the last time I was actually at a telescope was probably two years ago now, which is a little sad for me. And where was that? That was on the big island of Hawaii on the summit of Mauna Kea at the, uh, the Subaru telescope. The Subaru is the Japanese national telescope that we were using it to, in fact, search for Planet Nine. Oh, wonderful. Okay, and we're going to get more into that a bit later. But it's so lovely to have you. It's funny because pretty much every other guest that's been on the show I actually have met or is a friend of some sort. You are a wonderful newcomer in the sense of the orbit of this show. But I became aware of your wonderful work having given a talk at JPL about the work that I do, which can often um, end up in some related territory. And there was a dinner afterwards in the Athenaeum and your name came up. And a nice sort of side note, Robert Wilson, who is now a dear friend of mine, he was actually the person that kind of kicked off this show. So he was my first interview. So it's nice to come back to another wonderful astronomer. So during this lockdown period, you know, you mentioned briefly just how it definitely restricts movement and, you know, where you're able to be. How has it been for you otherwise? I almost feel guilty saying it, but it's actually been a sort of nice pullback to a quieter world. I haven't had to do all the trips for travel. I have spent most of it working at home with my wife there and my daughter there. And there are, there are parts of it that um, I really liked. You know, there are definitely parts that I didn't. But all in all, it worked well for me. I'm, I'm someone who doesn't need a ton of social interaction. It didn't work as well for my wife. She's much more social than me. But it was for me, it was not bad. So the subject of this show, it's called Orange Juice for the Ears, and it's taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I'm curious to know, what does that quote mean to you, Mike? I haven't ever heard that one before, um, but it's it's wonderfully true. I think about this even for these past two years. There is music that I associate with it and with the places I was and who I was with with my family, the only people I was with the past two years. And it can take me back immediately. And if I want to feel something particular, I can I get there immediately through the music that I remember from the time. So it's totally what he's saying. And with that, you know, as a perfect segue, what was the first song that imprinted on you? <laughs> it's, I have to answer honestly, even though it's like I think about this now and I think, wow, that was really it. But it was the song that was being played around my house when I was, gosh, I don't know, four or five years old. First song I ever declared to be my favorite song um, was a Neil Diamond song. And it was a Cracklin' Rosie, which 
I would sing along every time. I'm sure I didn't really know what the words were, and I haven't thought about it in many years, but I could probably sing it and almost sound like I'm saying the right words as we go now. I only recently re-looked it up just to sort of remind myself, and uh, I certainly didn't really understand what it was about at the time, and it's uh, pretty funny <laughs> when you think about a five-year-old going around and singing this song. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a listen to Cracklin' Rosie by Neil Diamond. Oh, I love my rosy child got the way to make me happy You and me, we go and start Crackling rules, your store-bought woman But you make me sing like a guitar humming So hang on to me, girl, our song keeps running And that was Cracklin' Rosie by Neil Diamond, and that was the first track that imprinted on Mike Brown. And you said you were about four or five, and it was the song that you first declared your favorite song. You mentioned in the email, you said that was embarrassing. Why do you see that as, as embarrassing? <laughs> I don't know. Neil Diamond and the early 70s and that sort of music in the 70s is something I think many people who I know these days would kind of make fun of. So to admit that it was your favorite song seems a little embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you, it was a great favorite song to have as a five-year-old. It was on the radio a lot and I could sing it at the top of my lungs. And what what did it make you feel as a five-year-old? Like what was it that really connected with you? I think because I didn't really understand the words or the meaning or anything else, I think it was just the sound. And, you know, it's a happy, joyous song. And it must have just been that because I can't think of what else it would have been that would have gotten me there. Um, It just sounded good and happy. And I wanted to sing it. It's definitely one you can kind of jive about to as a little kid. Absolutely. Singing all the words, singing about this story that, you know, probably isn't appropriate. I do kind of love that. (laughs) I, I love that, though, because there are so many wonderful examples of, you know, juxtaposition between the melody and then the lyrical content. And um, I think there's definitely something kind of magic in that. So you were born in Huntsville, Alabama. What was that like? I know it was spacey, but just give us a little bit more of a picture. What was home life like? Spacey is the right word. Huntsville, Alabama is where they were building the Saturn V rockets to, to go to the moon. And pretty much everybody who I knew, um, one of their parents was associated with the space program in, in some way. My father was working on Saturn V rockets. Other people were working on different aspects of, of missiles and rockets and everything else. So it was, it was unique. I don't think there are too many other places you could grow up where that was the main thing that everybody did. And other than that, it was a quiet suburban sort of town where the quiet would be broken every once in a while by big rumblings of a Saturn V rocket test. But otherwise, it seemed totally normal to me. This was 1965, Northern Alabama in 1965. There was a lot happening in that area at the time. And uh, I was utterly ignorant. It just seemed like a, a small cloistered town where we just all sat around and built rockets. And space stuff aside, and we're going to obviously come back to that, but was there a lot of music in the house? What was home life like in the sense of, you know, your parents and did you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older brother and younger sister and the Neil Diamond imprinting happened early because my dad was a big hi-fi aficionado and had big fancy uh, record equipment and liked to play records all the time. And when my parents divorced when I was in third grade, my mother remarried and my mother and father weren't from Alabama. They moved there for space program stuff, but she remarried somebody from Northern Alabama who played banjo and played fiddle and sang in bands. And so that music suddenly started infusing our house and had a big influence on what I listen to and the songs that I gravitate towards even today. Well, so it's clear that space was always in your DNA. You know, you mentioned your dad worked on the Apollo rockets, like most parents at the time, um, and that they built the Saturn V rocket in your town. And you saw, you must have seen the moon landing as a kid. But do you remember what most imprinted on you and really made you want to be an astronomer, which you announced or you identified age seven? Yeah, I think I was probably seven. So everybody who was watching the Apollo landings, 
wanted to be an astronaut. That is the coolest thing you could possibly do. Astronaut or maybe drive a fire truck. Those were about the best things in the world. But for some reason, I gravitated not towards the going into space, but to understanding those objects in space. And the thing that I remember, one of the earliest times was looking at the moon, seeing these craters on the moon. You know, the the astronauts were heading the moon, seeing these craters on the moon and going back in my backyard, hosing down the red dirt there in northern Alabama and just throwing rocks at the mud, trying to make craters that look like these ones on the moon. And it was trying to do these experiments, trying to understand that's really what hooked me rather than just the glory of going up on the rocket. How old were you when you were throwing the rocks and trying to recreate the moon surface? I was seven. That was seven, and my mother was not particularly happy that I made a big mud puddle in the back of the yard. And was that something that you ever sort of openly discussed with your dad, and did you have that connection at all? No, he was he was very quiet. I really don't remember having discussions with him at all about my interests until much later, maybe by the time I was in college or or even by the time I was here at Caltech. He was a difficult person to talk to. As a lot of engineers are. (laughs) Yes. As an aside, my grandfather worked in the field of telemetry on the first series of US satellites, the Explorer, Discoverer. Oh, wow. Yeah, and a lot of that was actually kind of secret. So I only found out about it really recently. But my grandfather was very remote and quiet. So how else were you like as a kid? You described yourself as nerdy. Were you, you know, math, science, all of the kind of academic subjects? Oh, yeah. Yep. I was nerdy. I loved math and science and math team and science team. And I was nerdy and I was quiet, painfully shy. And I think melancholy would be a good word. I'm not sure exactly why, but it's not that I was lonely and lacked friends. I had other nerdy friends. It was a great town for nerdy friends because all of the parents were nerdy science and engineering people. And so they all had nerdy kids and nerds kind of ruled. (laughs) But I was socially awkward and extraordinarily shy. And uh, that kind of defined my existence for a long time. And you went to Grissom, is that how you say it? Grissom High School? It was, named after Apollo 1 astronaut. Yeah, and described that as a little enclave of mostly kids of engineers. Did that feel like, I mean, that must have just felt like normal life. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's where I grew up. I assumed that everybody grew up with a bunch of engineers around building rockets. That's what normal people do. And looking back, do you remember when that bubble kind of broke? I don't because it never, it never really broke. I still have never, you know, really sat down and thought, wow, what a weird childhood I had because it still is just, that was just my normal childhood. It wasn't that strange in the sense that, you know, people do all kinds of different things, but they're people in the end. And they were just, they were normal people who, you know, happened to be sending people to the moon. Yeah. So I don't know. So it didn't seem all that weird, I guess. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking weird. It just sounds like such a such a rich environment in terms of particularly pursuing the interest that you had. It's like it was all kind of perfectly set up for you to go on and do what you went on to do. Or made me do what I went on to do. I don't know which one it really is. Mm. Okay, now moving on, Mike, what would the first album be that really had a major impact on you? So this is, again, from all these albums that were sitting around my parents' house. This is what what I would just play. I would go upstairs, find my dad's collection, just start rifling through them. And he wouldn't let me use his fancy hi-fi thing upstairs, but I had some crummy little record player downstairs. So I'd come to the crummy record player and play some. And the one that I played over and over and over through at least high school was Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And the song that I played over and over most. Well, you didn't you didn't quite do the song on repeat like you can these days. Um, you have to go there and lift up the needle and put it down. But still, it was, I think it's the very last song on the album. It's a song for the asking. And it just fit my sort of quiet, melancholy, high school, adolescent nerd buttons just about perfectly. Perfect. Now we're going to take a listen to Song for the Asking from the record Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Here is my song for the asking Ask me and I will play So sweetly I'll make you smile This is my tune 
And that was Song for the Asking from the album Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. And that was the album that Mike chose as one that had a real impact on him. And you said that you'd sneak it up to your crummy record player and play that. And it's such a beautiful song and it's such a short song. So there's something really understated. There's an understated beauty about it. And it is definitely melancholic, but it's also incredibly beautiful. What did that record kind of make you feel when you were listening to it? It's funny because, as I said earlier, you listen to it and you sort of immediately transport it back. And I, I probably have not listened to that song since high school, or if I have more than a, a handful of times and I listened to it the other day and it just felt like I was in high school all over again. It feels, it's a yearning, it's a wanting something to happen and it's melancholy, but hopeful, but also, I'll say also a little pretentious at the same time, which I think probably, you know, most of us in high school had that going on at the same time too. So it's kind of all of that rolled together. And did your dad ever let you use his fancy system? system? Uh, no, not not even ever once. Oh, wow, that's so mean. I think he I think he was worried I would you know ruin the needle or do something else. But it was okay. I had one downstairs and in my room, and I could just play these over and over and over. So, how did you get drawn into the world of physics, and what did you like about it? Uh, I know you said you wanted to understand pulleys. It's it's really true. When I was in eighth grade, our science class was physics. And in eighth grade physics, what that means is that you calculate how you can lift things with pulleys and how you can move things up inclined planes, simple machines, it was called. And I thought, this is the coolest thing in the world. You can understand how to make things happen by doing math. And I this is what I wanted to do. So I, I declared in eighth grade, I wanted to major in physics in college. And I had really no idea what it was. And it is not much about pulleys and inclined planes, but the idea was right. It means that you can try to understand the world around you and do it with math and calculations and figure things out. And it's still what I love doing today. Was there also an aspect of it feeling more like you could have a legitimate career following that rather than, say, astronomy? You know, astronomy is what I really loved. It never occurred to me that you could actually get a job being an astronomer. I didn't know any. I, I knew there was Carl Sagan. That's that's what I knew. If you wanted to be an astronomer, the only one that I knew was him. But I knew that people could be physicists and do things because a lot of the people who were building the rockets were engineers, but also physicists and stuff. So it's like, okay, this is something that you can do. And I like doing this and you can get a job doing this. And wasn't quite so focused on getting a job, but it was like, this is what real people do. And I'm happy to do that. So I was pretty happy to be doing that. And so just tell us, how did you end up at Princeton and what was that like? <laughs> so it's a funny story. I was an undergraduate at Princeton and I had never heard of it before. You know, you grow up in Northern Alabama and you hear of, most everybody would argue about whether they're going to Alabama or Auburn. That was the, the big debate. And then the nerds um, would often go to Georgia Tech. There weren't many other people doing many other things, but I knew I wanted to do physics. So I, I walked down to the library and opened up the big book of colleges, which would be, you know, the U.S. News and World Report website these days, but it had a list of best physics programs. And the best physics program in this list, it said Princeton University. So I went back home and I told my mother I wanted to go to Princeton University. And she just kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't know where it was. I didn't know what it was, but I, I figured it out. I didn't realize it was in New Jersey. I wasn't wasn't quite sure where New Jersey was. I'd never been in that area before, but I applied sort of out of nowhere and um, shockingly got in. They have some quota of nerdy boys from Alabama. So luckily I was, I was one of those. You were number one. I was number one. And actually, I, I know I was not number one. I know one other kid from Alabama who got there and he was, he was super smart. So he must've been number one. Um, but, but maybe I was number two. <laughs> And it was perfect for me, but I, I didn't visit. I didn't know much of anything. I showed up on campus that first day in 
September and there I was. But also the fact that you could just apply, not out of nowhere, but I mean, I wonder if that still would happen today. Oh, there's no chance. If I were the same kid that I was and grew up in Alabama and and did it today, I think I would get laughed out of the room. (laughs) Which is a real shame. It is. My daughter is a a junior in, in high school right now, so we are just starting that same process now. And the amount of things that she understands and research she's doing and, you know, we're going to go visit places and talk through this and that and it's a different world and it's it's too bad that there's mm. there's probably not space for just some kid who doesn't know anything and says oh, I'm gonna go to Princeton and then does and it works out. So just tell us a little bit more how you did end up making that move from physics into astronomy wasn't it a professor someone called Jim Peebles? Peebles so I majored in physics like I said but I really liked astronomy so I took astronomy classes because you have to take you know your physics electives along with your regular physics classes. So I took the astronomy elective classes and you have to do a couple of um, big research projects, including a, a senior thesis your your senior year. And I was like, I'm going to do these in astronomy. So I, I did a couple of astronomy projects, including a big one my senior year. And I knew I wanted to go to graduate school because I, I wanted to continue doing research. And I talked to one of the people I did the project with, whose name is Jim Peebles, just won the Nobel Prize in physics two years ago. And you know, I said, I'm going to go to grad school in, in physics. And I probably was asking for a letter of recommendation. And he said, physics, he's a physicist. He said, physics, why would you not do astronomy? You seem to be pretty good at this. And we need more people who are good at, at astronomy. Have you thought about astronomy? And that was it. That was the entire conversation. And I said, oh, and then I, you know, walked out and that changed it. It was permission to do it, which I had never really given myself. But if he said it, and then I suddenly had permission and that was it. That was the moment when I became someone who was going to be an astronomer instead of someone who was going to be a physicist. So you then went to Berkeley where you got your MA and then PhD in astronomy. Right. How did you get so interested in the outer solar system? I know there was a bit of a aha moment. I was originally working on other things in the solar system. And, and it's funny because at the time, you know, astronomy was kind of ranked, the coolness of what you did in astronomy was ranked by how far away it was. So people who worked on the entire origin of the universe were the coolest. And if you worked on distant galaxies, <laughs> you were pretty cool. And if you worked on stars in our galaxies, you were a little bit lame. And if you worked on our solar system, you were about the most pathetic person who had ever been in that department. But I just, I loved the solar system. I studied comets and I could look at them with the telescope and study their composition and then get out the binoculars and see it, you know, try that with your distant galaxy sucker. It was enthralling that these things, the moons of Jupiter, I would study. And again, you could see them in the sky with binoculars, track them and track them with your telescope. But I had not started working on the outer solar system because there was nothing in the outer solar system. There was Pluto and there was nothing else as far as anybody knew and as far as anybody thought. And that all changed in 1992. I was still in graduate school. In 1992, Jane Liu and David Jewett, who uh, David Jewett was at the University of Hawaii, Jane Liu was at Berkeley a couple doors down from me. They discovered the first new object beyond Neptune in what we now call the Kuiper Belt. And she told me about it a day or two before the big public announcement. And I was just kind of amazed. I I remember where we were standing when she told me about this. Really, it had been drilled in, in all of us that the solar system ended at Pluto, and that's kind of it. And so this sudden realization that there could be more out there was amazing. You know, I was finishing my PhD. I didn't have time to suddenly switch that. But by the time I got to Caltech a couple of years later and was ready to start a research program on my own. This seemed like the most exciting area to be spending my time in in the solar system, these new discoveries out on the outer edge in this Kuiper belt. So what three discoveries did you then make at that point? So you start out, you're trying to find your way, you're trying to work on a couple different projects. Some of them were sort of interesting, some of them were less interesting. I really wanted to understand what these things were made out of for the reason that they've been in deep freeze since the very beginning of the solar system. So they, they have the capability of preserving some of the earliest materials that we, we don't get to see anymore. Things that were originally on the Earth have all been cooked and smushed and mushed around, and so it's really hard to tell. But these things are kind of in deep freeze, and so you could study them and learn what they were made out of. So the way you do that is with the process of spectroscopy, which is that you look at the sunlight that's reflected off the surface, and it has the fingerprints of different chemicals and, and different elements, and you learn what's there. The problem is these things are really far away, and they were really faint. 
And so I starting to do the spectroscopy, but it was very limited. Even with the biggest telescope in the world, the Keck telescope that I was using a lot, we could only do a few targets. And so I was frustrated and decided that the, the trick was to go find some new, bigger, brighter ones of my own so I could study those. And so I, I started this big search of the outer solar system looking for the brightest things out there. The ones that have been found up to date had been small and They'd been found in these tiny little patches of the sky. Nobody had ever kind of scanned the entire skies looking for the biggest couple of ones. And I, I knew there would be big ones out there um, once we started looking. It was pretty clear by even in, in a couple of years after the first discoveries that Pluto was part of this same population and that there should be other objects of the same scale as Pluto. And somebody needed to go find them, I thought, should be me. So uh that's really what I dedicated myself to for first decade of my career since starting at Caltech. Well, the rest of the career too, I guess, but uh, but that's when I started. And so obviously three of the first, you know, of these discoveries that which were particularly significant, Eris, Halmea and Makemake. At the time, did you realize the significance of Eris? It was interesting the way the process worked just by chance. We, we kept on finding bigger and bigger and bigger objects approaching the size of Pluto more and more. And, it, and it's just because by chance, we started scanning the skies in the plane of the solar system where all the planets are. And there, there was nothing very big. And so we sort of started moving up a little bit higher and a little bit lower out of the plane, found a couple of slightly bigger and then moving more slightly bigger and moving more really bigger. And so the, the first of the sort of dramatically large objects we found was, was Haumea. It was found a couple days after Christmas in 2004, and it was clearly big. We didn't know how big it was. You only know how bright things are when you discover them. You're not, you can't tell how big it is because you don't know if it's bright because it's got a really reflective surface or because it's big with a dark surface. They both look the same at first. Um, so we eventually figured out that the Haumea's about a, about half the size of Pluto. But at the time, we weren't sure. It could have been bigger, it could have been smaller, but clearly a big, dramatic, bright object. Great one for doing this spectroscopy that I was excited about, but also it was clear that this one was an interesting one. So we started trying to learn everything we could about it, but we were interrupted when a couple of weeks later, a couple of days after New Year's of 2005, is found an even brighter, even more distant object, and that was Eris. And Eris, absolutely, the moment of its discovery it was 100% clear that this thing was significant. And the reason why is because, as I said, you don't know how big it is because you don't know if it's really reflective or, or really dark. But even if it was the most reflective object in the solar system, to be as bright as it was, it still had to be as big as Pluto. So, so we knew right away that this was the thing that was going to either be a planet because it's the same size as Pluto or kill Pluto as a planet or something. We didn't know what it was going to do, but it was very obvious something was going to happen. And how did it feel to discover, you know, what initially was considered to be potentially the 10th planet, um, this object more massive than Pluto, which actually then led to Pluto's declassification, as well as obviously Eris's. Was that a bitter chalice in any way, or was it just tremendously exciting? No, it was exciting to have found it and to try to learn everything we could as quickly as we could. You know, we observed it with all sorts of telescopes. We figured out what it was made out of. We figured out that it had a moon and and how long the moon takes to go around, and therefore we could figure out how massive the object was. And, and so it was incredibly exciting doing all these studies, <laughs> all this going on while my wife is, at the time of the discovery, she was three months pregnant. At the time of the announcement of, of Eris, uh, my daughter had just been born. She was three weeks old. So it was just this, it was a pretty crazy, productive, in, in many senses of the word, part of life. And as People started learning about it, getting excited about it, and talking about it as the 10th planet. I have to say, the one feeling I had about it being the 10th planet was was sort of a feeling of fraud. It was not right. You know, I, I could think back and, and you know, William Herschel discovered Uranus. Uranus is 16 times more massive than the Earth. You know, Leverrier found Neptune, which is about 17 times more massive than the Earth. And, you know, I found this little thing that's about a third the mass of the moon um, and is pretty tiny. And it's just not the same scale as these 
real planetary discoveries. And it just seemed fraudulent to call it the 10th planet. And so actually, instead of losing Pluto as a planet, and obviously the possibility of Eris, I know you sort of describe it as feeling like there was finally some sense of not justice, but that the notion of a planet finally had scientific meaning. Was that very important to you? It's important to me scientifically and also I'm an educator. I teach classes. I give lectures around the world. I talk to the public a lot. I think I think educationally, you need to understand why Pluto is not a planet, why Eris is not a planet, that the scales are incredibly different, that there are these eight objects in the solar system that dominate everything. And then there's a lot of other kind of debris that flits around. And, and you know, Pluto's one of the more, it's the second most massive pieces of this debris that we know. Eris is the most massive, but it's still just debris compared to these planets. And I think understanding that really makes you understand what the solar system is about, both as a scientist and as the public. And that, that matters for me. I want people to understand this solar system in which we find ourselves embedded So in 2003, in case you weren't doing enough already, you also discovered the most distant known object in the entire solar system, Sedna. How did that feel? And what did you learn through that discovery, which I feel like you're still deep in in the process of exploring? So Sedna, I will say, was the most important scientific discovery of that period when we were looking for these bright objects. It's not big. It's, it's maybe about a third the size of Eris, but it's not the size that matter. It's the weird orbit that it's on. So it's on this orbit that takes about 10,000 years to go around the sun. And the strange thing about it is not just that it takes so long, but it also never comes very close to the other planets. And how it got there was a mystery. At the time, we thought maybe it was that uh, another star had come through our solar system a long time ago and kind of pulled it out and and jostled it around some. And so it was kind of exciting to think that this was maybe a, a fossil record of some early interaction that the sun had. We didn't know the answers from just one, but we knew from just that one object that we were going to learn something about how the whole solar system put itself together and its its earliest history of rearrangement. So that one was 2003. It's, it's been a while now. So we are still trying to understand the implications of Sedna even right now. But so the discovery of Sedna did open up that potential of Planet Nine. Absolutely. So Sedna was the first thing that we now know in retrospect was pointing out that there is a massive planet really far out, something like 30 times further away than Neptune. And it's big. It's maybe six or seven times the mass of the Earth. And where we originally thought that Sedna had been pulled out of its orbit by a passing star, we now realize that it was actually pulled out of its orbit by a planet, this planet nine. And the, the reason we realize that is because we found other objects like Sedna on these very distant orbits, and they're all pulled in the same direction. If it had been a star, and if it had been four billion years ago, like we thought, everything would have kind of swept back up into random directions. It could have been pulled into one direction, but then they would kind of diffuse around to random. The fact that they're all pointing in the same direction right now means that something's pulling them in their orbits right now. And the only thing that makes any sense is this giant planet that we're looking to find. And where are you with the looking to find it? It must be kind of frustrating seeing, you know, the gravitational effects, but not having the calculations to tell you where to look. So we're in a good state right now because we see the gravitational effects. It was six years ago, almost exactly, that we published this prediction of this giant planet. And for much of that last six years, I spent it trying to formulate the mathematics that let you take these gravitational perturbations and turn them into a prediction of where the planet is. It's fun because this is this is precisely what uh, Urbain Le Verrier did in 1845 to try to find what we now know as Neptune. He used perturbations of Uranus. He had it easy because he got to see Uranus go around the sun a couple of different times and that changes things. We, we don't get to see these Kuiper belt objects go around the sun unless we wait 5,000 years. But we still can try to use their perturbations and understand their perturbations to figure out where it is. And now we know, well, now we have a pretty good understanding of the path in the sky that, that Planet Nine takes, the swath of sky. We know the orbit. We know its tilt compared to the planets. We know approximately how far away it is, approximately how bright it is. The one thing we don't know, which is frustrating, is we don't know where in its orbit it is. So 
while we know it's passed through the sky, we don't know which part of the path it's on right now. So that's what we're concentrating on, is searching along this path for where it is. Do you think uh, Kid Mike, listening to Simon and Garfunkel, would ever have thought he'd grow up to first demote Pluto and then also, <laughs> fingers crossed, prove the discovery of the real ninth planet? Um, it's pretty cool. You know, I, I loved Pluto as a kid. I was an astronomy nerd while I was sitting there listening to Simon and Garfunkel, and I had a poster on my wall that included pictures of all the planets and an artist representation of Pluto with big icy spires. And it was, I think if you had asked me the time, I might have said it was my favorite planet. So it, wow. it would be shocking to know that was something I was going to do and would never have thought, even if you had asked me 10 years ago, if I would predict that there's a new planet and go find it, I would say absolutely not. That's that's totally crazy. But here we are. And what perspective do you get from working with such expanded time and space as opposed to our very sort of increasingly short-termist way of thinking and operating on this planet? You know, it's interesting because you work with that, those long time periods and you work with the, the deep history of the Earth and have this feel for, I could describe you a timeline of, you know, what, what the solar system has been like, what the Earth has been like at every moment up to today. And yet I'm still embedded in my day-to-day, -day, have to stop at the grocery store because we don't have any food in the refrigerator tonight and all the normal stuff that everybody goes through. So it's, somehow you keep both of those in your head and the way they connect to me is those moments when you are studying what the surface of Jupiter's moon Europa is like, what kind of salts are there, what's the ocean underneath. And then you also just step out with your binoculars and you see it. And there it really is. This is not an abstract thing that you're, that you're just doing calculations about. This is real. This is really out there. And I, I think Planet Nine is going to be the same thing. It's going to be this years and years worth of computer calculations and math and going to the telescope and searching through data. But in the end, it's there and we can see it. People will be able to see it through big telescopes with their eyeballs, not just pictures of it. It's a kind of an amazing thing to think about. It is. I guess I just feel with so much of, you know, life on this planet and beyond, human beings really have to catch up in so many ways and and it is all there and it's just almost waiting patiently for our senses to perceive it. Yeah, I, I think it's true. So is there something that you've learned more recently about the field that you wish you'd known when you started? No, strangely enough. I feel like I have been incredibly lucky. I didn't I didn't know anything about the field when I started, <laughs> really. I said I wanted to be an astronomer because I liked these things, but I didn't really know what astronomers did. I said I didn't know any. And I have been just incredibly lucky that the things that astronomers do happen to be things that I'm actually good at. And it need not have been that way. <laughs> I might have enjoyed astronomy, but not been actually good at the mechanisms of what you really do. But it has turned out to be perfect for me. It's a field that's rare in science these days. It's a field where individuals and small groups can still make major contributions, which is not to say that there aren't huge groups doing big collaborative things like a lot of science happens these days. But I think more so than most fields, you and one or two other people, or maybe just you by yourself, can sit down, look through some telescopes, make some theories, do some equations, and, and learn something. And that's the way I like to work. I've never really been one of these people who works in these big giant collaborations. And uh, it's been a delight. I'm as lucky as I could have been. This is the right field for me that I happen to like and accidentally found my way to. When I know that you've always enjoyed the detailed science and calculation part as much as the looking at the sky part, which I think is the sort of perfect two skills and appreciations to have. But you said that if you weren't looking for a planet all day or teaching, you'd be on your couch reading good modern fiction. So if this Planet Nine uh, ends up, well, it is, it is the case. We just have to get there. But is there one book, say, you know, sort of symbolically, you would have a whole planet read? <laughs> ah, that's a good question. I'll answer a different one to start with. Well, I'm trying to think of an answer to that one. So the book I'm reading right now because I feel like I'm just in what I hope are these final stages. We're kind of narrowing in on where Planet Nine is, and I'm feeling a little obsessive. So I'm actually um, in the middle of Moby Dick right now, which um, 
you know, it's one of those ones that we were all supposed to have read in high school, maybe, I think. I think I started it many times, have never finished it, and uh, I'm feeling very Ahab-like these days. So I would never recommend everybody go read a certain book because it's probably the same as, as with music. It's also personal to what you're feeling, who you are, what you gravitate towards. Everybody should go off and read a book, but it shouldn't be the same one. <laughs> here, here. Um, speaking of your own book, what was your intention behind writing that? And do you feel like science needs a little more storytelling over just strict academia? I do. I think that the storytelling is a really important part. And so I, I wrote this book because I really had uh, wanted to write. I took writing classes in graduate school, and I, I promised myself that when I finished my PhD in astronomy, I would decide whether I would go be a writer or go be an astronomer, and I would not just default do one or the other. And I thought about it, and I, I realized that being an astronomer is probably easier than being a writer, at least as a path that you know how to follow. But also, more importantly, being an astronomer would give me things to write about. And so I had in, in the back of my head that I always wanted to write a book. And when the Eris discovery and the Pluto demotion came along, I was like, okay, this is the time to do it. If ever I'm going to do it, this is the time to do it. But I really wanted it to be, as you said, it's, it's stories. It's, it's a memoir, not a science book. It's always entertaining to, to read the Amazon reviews. My daughter likes to open them up and read the one-star ones to me every once in a while. Like, this, this is a <laughs> Just book to bring about him. It's not even about us. science. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty funny. So the people who are most disappointed in the book are probably like the amateur astronomers who wanted, you know, just the straight science, none of this personal stuff. And, you know, I apologize to them. But I think that having people understand both the science and scientists through stories, I think, is an important thing. And to realize that somebody who's killing Pluto and doing these discoveries is also getting married and having a kid and doing all these other normal human things all at the same time. I like that part. And um, if there's another book out there after Planet Nine, it'll probably be similar to that rather than just the science that the amateur astronomers want. Sorry, guys. Um, but there are plenty of those other science books written, so they can read those. I completely agree. I think the thing that really draws us in you know, to anything, anything that we think is sort of beyond our understanding or our remit is storytelling. It's something that captures the imagination, something that feels, you know, magical. And you think about the world that you're in and the things you're seeing and experiencing. There's so much magic. There's so much imagination. It's like imagination and creativity of the kind of universe is infinite. So I think it's really key that we that, that is brought to life because otherwise it just feels like it's cold data or whatever. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's magic out there and uh, we need to hear about it. So what is the music you would send into space, Mike? So sending into space, there are a lot of different things that you would send to space. Some things you would send to space just as a call to the wilderness because you don't think anybody's ever out there going to hear anything. But, but maybe someone would hear something and hear something about us. And so I'm going to assume that they can't understand the words. And so this was one that to me is just sounds that I think are wonderful sounds. That maybe should have been Cracklin Rosie. That would have been the right choice. Just, you know, <laughs> songs that a five-year-old gravitates to would be the right thing to send to space. So maybe that'll be my second choice. But You can choose that for every answer if you want. <laughs> my first choice is just one that, for whatever reason, every time I hear it, I just get goosebumps. And maybe because it's dramatic and bombastic and all these reasons, but it's, it's from um, pictures from an expedition from Mussorgsky, and it's the last one. It's the Great Gates of Kiev, and it just... I randomly heard it. There was this immersive Van Gogh exhibit in LA a couple months ago and had bad music and Van Gogh and, and suddenly that started playing again. And it's just every single time. It's just goosebumps every time. So if we could give the aliens goosebumps, I think that would be success and this might do it. Perfect. Um, so let's give all our alien friends lots of goosebumps and listen to The Great Gates of Kiev from Pictures at an Exhibition by Magorsky.
And that was the Great Gates of Kiev from pictures at an exhibition. And that was the music that Mike would send into space because it gives you goosebumps. Yeah, still does. Every time. <laughs> Can't, cannot listen to that without the goosebumps. And so having this moment of reflection, is there something in your life's work that maybe few people know uh, about, but that you're immensely proud of? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I'm, I'm not good at keeping quiet about things that I'm proud of. So is there anything that I'm proud of that nobody knows? Having written a book and, and being pretty open on Twitter about everything going on, people probably know more about my life's work than they really care to. So I, so I don't think there's anything out there that, that's not known to anybody who would want to know. It must be interesting, though, that when you've made a discovery or you think you're onto something, it's not like you can just announce it, right? There's a whole lengthy process and, and maybe some of that never sees the light of day. There are some things that take a long time and there's some things that can happen very quickly. If I were to find Planet Nine today, we might announce it next week. We would confirm that it was really there and make sure we didn't do anything wrong and we would just tell the world. So some things like that can just go boom. And then some things take years and years and maybe even never succeed. This whole big calculation of where Planet Nine is might be the longest I actively worked on something in my career. And I wasn't sure that there was ever going to actually be an answer, but uh, we finally figured it out. So there can be all different flavors of how that works. If you could distill the essence of why you love astronomy so much into one sentence, what would that be? I get to use observations and math to untangle the universe. And it's kind of an infinite puzzle. So no one's ever going to win, right? Or we win all the time. Yeah. It's every little bit of the puzzle. You know, every time you get one piece and figure out how it fits in, you have won. And it's just an amazing feeling when it happens. How do you feel looking back, you know, imagining we are out in space listening to that beautiful piece of music? How do you feel about the state of our blue marble right now? I'm not op optimistic. And as a scientist, it's hard to see what's happening and not be able to project what will happen in the future. As someone who lives in L.A. and we occasionally have to evacuate our house for potential wildfires getting worse and worse, it's hard not to be pessimistic about much of the future. And yet we go on to try to understand what's out there. So it's this weird optimistic view of trying to still going on and learning and talking and loving and meeting and, and everything else in the most optimistic way with this base of pessimism. It's a very, very strange way to feel. And it's probably impossible to say one thing, but what do you treasure most about life on this planet? I think I would have the, the standard response, family, my family and the extended family that's, that are my closest friends. There are wonderful things on the planet in all aspects of it, but if it weren't for them, I don't think I would care about any of it. It's interesting because obviously, you know, you also mentioned that you were kind of melancholic and, you know, somewhat more introverted, but, you know, obviously the people that are nearest and dearest to you bring this planet to life in a certain way. Just returning to the climate emergency, because I feel like you must have some unique wisdom perspective that you've kind of gleaned from all the work that you, you do, that maybe there's something you could share with us. So I would say that the, the work I do doesn't give me an immediate perspective, except for the fact maybe that just the overall work in, in science is that you can't fake it. You can't wish that there were an answer that's not true. You can wish all day long, but, it's, but it doesn't come true just because you wish it would or it's difficult to have it not be true. And you know, I feel like as a society, we're wishing things were not true or wishing that there were solutions or assuming something's all going to work out because you know that's how movies end. They always work out. And as a scientist, you, you know that's not true. You can't just decide that there's going to be an answer. Sometimes there's not an answer. Sometimes what you want to have happen does not happen. The universe doesn't work that way. And the science, the physics points you down a very particular path that you can't just hope doesn't happen. That's how I feel we are these days. Not a very optimistic, uplifting thought. 
Oh, no, I don't think we need uplifting thoughts. I think we need truth. Truth is the most hopeful of all. Yeah. When I also feel like it's certainly a, we need a huge dose of humility. That's almost more what I meant by the work that you do. You know, there's such a appreciation in some ways of the ephemeral and really insignificant nature of human beings. And yet, obviously, we do have profound potential as well simultaneously. But I think, you know, we think of ourselves as, you know, such a infinite superior species with that's going to invent some miraculous technology and I just look out to the natural world and see the best technology already in existence you know but we kind of have to catch up to that I feel yeah I 100% agree that we just we think we're going to figure it out you know we're going to just invent the technology it's all going to work and there is no guarantee that that's true it just doesn't have to work that way it can just all not work very well. I think we've learned that in, I would say, a minor way compared to the the climate emergency. We've learned that in a minor way just in the last two years with the pandemic. You know, we all thought we had different ideas on how things were going to work out and something was going to happen and it was all going to be fine. And it turned out not to be fine. And I would like to think that we would learn from this. But I think, in fact, it might be the opposite. I think this has made me even less optimistic that we're capable of working to figure out these grand problems. Again, not very uplifting, but that's hard not to look at what's going on and feel that way these days. So now imagining the time when Mike is no longer on this planet, which will be a very sad day, what would the song be that you would have play at your memorial? Uh, I've actually thought about this one a lot. It is from my, my pessimism just now. It is a wonderful, optimistic, happy song about a life, the old 97s, longer than you've been alive. Wonderful. So now we're going to take a listen to Longer Than You've Been Alive by Old 97s. Bottles of whiskey, bottles of beer. There's a bottle of medicine somewhere around here. We've been in nightclubs and we've been in bars. Honky tonks and theaters from Memphis to Mars. Most of our shows were a triumph of rock, although some nights I might have been checking the clock. And that was Longer Than You've Been Alive by Old 97s. And that was the um, very upbeat <laughs> song that Mike Brown would have play at his memorial. Why? <laughs> Why? So not implying that I'm actually a rock star and on, on tour with a band, but I this song I've always just related to in the sense that here's a guy who loves what he does and, and had pretty good luck and just wants to keep doing it. And there are aspects of it that are good. There are aspects of it that are bad, but this is his life. This is the life he loves. And that's, I feel that I've been allowed to have that same life. I've gotten to do what I've loved. I've had pretty good luck. And uh, I just want people to be happy that I had that chance. And how do you feel about death? Do you see that as the final frontier or something else? I do. You know, again, as a a scientist, you sort of look at what's going on and and it's hard not to think that's it. It's still still a weird enough concept. It's hard to imagine how whatever it is inside your head can just suddenly be extinguished. But I don't really see any way that it's not the way it works. Considering that you said you'd thought about your memorial song a lot, have you thought what your epitaph would be? No, and I hope it's not my job to write my own. I think somebody else has to write that for me. Oh, no, but this is the thing that goes on your gravestone. Do I write that? Do yeah. Do I have to write that? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Mike. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, not for anyone else. It's not for Pluto to pipe in. <laughs> uh, well, so the good news is that I hope to not have a gravestone. So I'll just be scattered to the wind somewhere. So maybe I don't have to have one. Okay, I'm totally the same as in I feel, yeah, no, no gravestone. Wind or maybe buried and just to decompose somewhere and give nutrients for the fungi or something. Yeah, I, I like that too. I like that. <laughs> um, is there anything you're excited about working on right now? I imagine there's pretty much one answer, which you gave along with your reading of Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so it's hard. If you're on the trail of Planet Nine, you are on the trail of Planet Nine. Although even Ahab would stop and go after other whales along the way just to, to keep the men happy. 
So I, I do stop and go after other stuff along the way while we're looking for Planet Nine. I have students who I work with who are doing other things. and I like doing a lot of different things. And so I have a lot of Planet Nine in my head, but we also have uh, a lab that we work in trying to understand chemistry of moons, trying to understand some other small objects out by Jupiter and, and what they're made of and why they're there. I'm involved in a spacecraft that's heading out to visit some asteroids. So there's always a ton of other things going on as the big search for Planet Nine is underway. All small stuff, Mike, you know, like a banker goes to bed and he's like, oh, yeah, I crunched those numbers really good today. And, you know, <laughs> then you can go to bed and be like, yeah, I discovered the ninth planet of our solar system. Wow. It's just a day's work. Yeah, one of these days. One of these days. OK, so now moving to the last musical choice for you today, what would the album be that you'd pass on to the next generation, specifically your daughter and why? So it's an album that she's heard me play occasionally. I don't tend to play it when she's around because she hates it. <laughs> she hates the way it sounds. Oh, she thinks dear. it's morose. She doesn't like the voice. It's Leonard Cohen. It's the last Leonard Cohen album before he died. Uh, you Want It Darker. And it's a meditation on life and love and death, which is <laughs> sort of all Leonard Cohen albums are meditations on life and love and death. He died just a couple of weeks after the album came out. Um, and so, I mean, his voice is just gravelly and deeper. It is just amazing to listen to and think about the end. Um, it's not a song I'd want for my memorial service because it's deep and dark and resigned, but it's a wisdom of age that I think is important to hear and listen to. When she's not home, I turn it up and play it very loudly. Wonderful. Well, it is always a pleasure for me to play Leonard Cohen. I'm looking at him right now, not literally. <laughs> is there anything else? We're going to end with that song, You Want It Darker, from the record, You Want It Darker by Leonard Cohen in just a few minutes. But Mike, is there anything else you wish to pass on to your daughter? Does she share a passion for wanting to understand what's up in the sky? She loves the world around us. She's not interested in it in a scientific way, doesn't want to calculate it, but she wants to experience it. She wants to be out in nature. She wants to be in the mountains. And so we share that together and it's been wonderful. And how do you feel about the notion of your legacy? I would say I, I love what I do and I've had pretty good luck. It's been fun to have been able to do things that people will know about, will read about. And it makes me feel like I've done good. I've done things that I'm happy to have been a part of. I am delighted that I have been allowed to do what I've been allowed to do. You've gone quite some ways beyond trying to figure out the, the surface of the moon as a seven-year-old. I've gone quite some ways and also not very far at all. I love that. So what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year music choices? What is the thread that connects all the music choices? Such a good question. <laughs> I'm not going to have an answer to that one. It's a life. The only thread is how you have woven through a life that you don't know what it's going to be when it starts and you don't know what it's going to be as it ends, but you're there the whole time. You are the thread. That's all I know. Oh, profound. <laughs> Turning the thread back on itself. I love it. <laughs> um, and so big question, but thinking about science today, what do you think we've gained, say, over your lifetime? And what do you think we've lost? So the thing about science that we've gained over my lifetime is that I, I think that there's an opportunity and a lot of public engagement in science that there wasn't in the past. I think that when I was born, scientists were these stuffy men in white coats who made pronouncements. And, you know, now scientists are people all over Twitter or your Facebook or something talking about their discoveries or giving talks on YouTube or something. It's a big open world and everybody who wants to can learn as much about it as they want to. What have we lost? Well, I think that with that openness, I think we have lost some of the priesthood of science, which was maybe not a good thing at all to begin with. But one thing it did allow is that there was there was respect of not the scientists, although there was, 
but of the science. If scientists suggested that maybe we were all going to blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons and we needed to think about how to get rid of them, it was it actually mattered at the time. If scientists say something now, there are many, many loud voices. The fact that all the scientists are accessible means that everybody else is too, and it's there's no particular reason that people will listen to a scientist as opposed to somebody else who has a different opinion based on something else. And so there's good parts about that. and The bad parts about that um, is what we both lost and what we've gained in these, these last decades. A lot more access, but also a lot more noise. Yeah. There's no way to have one without the other, I don't think. So it's going to be an interesting thing to try to figure out. And very last question, Mike. What is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? I hope that people feel like the solar system is part of their neighborhood. I hope they feel it's theirs. I hope they understand it. I hope that people will hear about these discoveries of Planet Nine, of other things out there. And, you know, that they'll be like me when I was a kid, get a poster with with all the planets. And it's our neighborhood. This is where we live. And I'm just trying to help us all understand our neighborhood a little bit better. And I hope they do. And for us to be good neighbors. That would be good too. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation. Well, this was really fun. It's opened up many other worlds of potential. But now we're going to end with You Want It Darker. Oh, yes. From the record, You Want It Darker by Leonard Cohen. And that is where we are right now. I mean, literally. So let's take a listen to this. And Mike, thank you once again. So much fun. Thank you so much. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame.